out to in your Bible to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We'll be continuing our sermon series in the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a book that is often neglected and misunderstood. So for this reason, each week that I preach from it, I like to say a few words about how to approach this book, especially when we sometimes we have people that are uh, here for the first time, either online or in our midst. And um, so we need to understand what this book is about. From the time that it was written, which was about a thousand years before Jesus came, 3,000 years before now, it has been understood as a song that speaks about Christ as the bridegroom to his people. It has been one of the most cherished books and has been considered a very sacred and holy book. The Jews understood it as referring to the coming Messiah, and then the early church understood it as referring to the Messiah who had just come. And that continued on right on through until pretty modern times. But in modern times, in the last 150 years or so, many scholars began to float the idea that because there were love songs that they found in some of the pagan cultures that were neighbors to Israel and whatnot, that the Song of Solomon must be nothing more than just one of those love songs that they had gotten from other cultures and they wanted to have one too and it got stuck in the Bible somehow. Many of these scholars were unbelievers who were doing this sort of thing with the entire Old Testament. They would take something like the Ten Commandments that we know came directly from God on Mount Sinai and were written with the finger of God and they would say that oh, they got this, bits and pieces of this from this culture over here and this one over here, and it didn't really come from God. They don't like to retain the knowledge of God in their thoughts, and so they find ways to try to deny Him. They come up with theories and speculations that have very little grounding, little basis whatsoever. Since these theories were floated, sadly, many who do believe the Bible to be the Word of God jumped on board with these scholars who don't believe that, embracing the notion that the church had been wrong in the way that it had used and benefited from the Song of Solomon for all of those years. Some of the believing scholars who hold this view are actually very faithful men, otherwise who still bring forth from this book many helpful things about maybe marriage and sometimes even applying it to um, Christ and our relationship with him, which they know to be a picture of our relationship with Christ. So today, as we think about this, I want to remind you that even if they do preach this book is primarily a, I'm talking about believers now preaching, uh, as primarily a sanctified love song about Solomon, one of his wives, then they ought to see that it speaks much about Christ and be willing to draw application to our relationship with him because marriage is very clearly, according to God's word, a picture of our relationship with Christ. 
So if you're among those who hear this sermon and you reject the allegorical sort of interpretation that I've been following, that shouldn't prevent you from rejoicing in the things that are illustrated through a song about marriage, about Christ in the Song of Solomon and his relationship with the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul makes that relationship very clear that, that Christ and the church is, is uh, marriage is a pattern of that with the, the husband representing Christ and the, the wife, the church. So toward the end of his discourse about that in Ephesians 5, he says these words about the one flesh relationship, okay, the sexual aspect of marriage, which it's, he says that that itself is an illustration of our relationship with Christ, which is very interesting. Ephesians 5, 30 through 32, he says, for we are members of his body, talking about Christ, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And that one flesh relationship, of course, is where husband and wife and sexual union together. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, of course, he is not saying that we have physical sexual relations with Christ. But he is saying that the church has the equivalent of that in a spiritual way, in our relationship with Christ as our Savior. And this is presented all through the Bible. Isaiah talks about uh, his people bringing forth children because he is their husband and things of that nature. He talks about divorcing them. He talks about them committing adultery when they serve other gods. So we are one flesh with him, with our Lord Jesus, in a spiritual way that is parallel to a way, the way that a wife is one flesh with her husband. Now let's remember, as we come into the Song of Solomon again, where we are in our study. I want to review a little bit. We're in chapter 5. And at the start of chapter 5, we have Jesus, the bridegroom, coming to be intimate in a spiritual way with his church, represented by a husband knocking at the door, The scene opens with him, we believe it, representing the Lord Jesus, knocking at the church's door. He calls out to her with sweet words, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He says, open to me. You know, I I want to come. And he asks her then to, she's in bed. He asks her to inconvenience herself that she might enjoy his love. And he hers. She does not reject him from being her husband. She doesn't say, Oh, I, 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 don't want, I want to have another husband. I want, to, I want to have someone else. No, it's not like that. But she pushes him away. Says, no, no, it's too much trouble. I, I, I have to get my robe on. I already took it off. I already washed my feet. I don't want to have to wash my feet again. So he reaches out to her and he touches her with his powerful, gracious touch. And she's aroused and rises with ardent affection that we find cannot be suppressed. And opens to, goes to open for him. But when she opens, she finds that he has departed. You see, his touch, though, has so changed her that she doesn't go back to bed. 
when she finds that he has departed. Instead, she goes out in the night to seek him because she's aroused and she wants to find him. She wants to meet with her Lord. She wants to be with him. So she goes out seeking him. She is roughly treated the shepherds of the church, the watchmen of the city of, 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 uh, of God's city, Jerusalem. The watchmen find her and they treat her roughly, but that doesn't stop her. They don't uh, realize that she's truly seeking him now. She'd been sluggish and sleepy. And as we saw last week, then she comes to her friends in the church and uh, they're called the daughters of Jerusalem, right? The, the daughters of Jerusalem, it's, it, that refers to any of the members of the church, male or female. And she asks them to tell him, her beloved, that she is sick because of her pining for him, because of his absence from her. She says, I'm, I'm lovesick, like being homesick. I don't I want to be home and I'm not at home. I want to have his love and I don't. I want him to come back to me. I want to, she's asking them to pray for her because she wants to experience his love that he had come to manifest to her right then. And she's not experiencing it because she pushed him away. Now, last week, we spent the entire time looking at the response of the daughters of Jerusalem when she um, told them that to, you know, to, to go to him and, and to pray to him, basically, and tell him I'm lovesick. Um, they, they responded to her, the daughters of Jerusalem, with a very excellent question. After seeing how earnest she was about finding him, going through the streets at night, getting beat up, still not stopping, they were eager to know what makes him so special to you? Why she wanted him more than anything else. And this week, as promised, we're going to look at the answer to that question. See, we think about that. You know, why do, why do Christians, why do they suffer for this one? Why for, the, for, for thousands of years, really, have people been willing to die for this one that is called the beloved? What is it about him that makes him so special? What is it that makes you want to, to seek him and search for him? That's the question that they're asking. And then here we have the answer. She's going to tell these fellow members why she loves them so much. Think of it like this. You have the members in the church and they look at the church through the ages and they see the church's devotion to Christ. Like the daughters of Jerusalem, they say, yeah, you know, look at these people that were martyred for Christ and all these things. It's the church of which they themselves are a part. And they ask the church, you know, this question, why? Why is he so important to you? This is how the church edifies herself in love. Remember what I've told you about the bride here. She's made up of many members. There's one bride of Christ, one church, but she's made up of many different members. And some of the members are apostles and prophets that gave us the word of God. And so they're able to bring the truth to us that God gave to them, to the rest of the church. And the other members come and they learn reading the word of God and learning from them. Some are teachers, some are encouragers, some are helpers. There's all different ways. And we encourage and work together. We edify ourselves. So we need to be asking this question. We see someone and Christ is very dear to them. Why is Christ so special to you? What does he mean to you? Tell us what he means. And then they tell us and we're edified. We tell them what he means to us. This sort of thing is the kind of relationship that we want to have. 
So if you're of the church, you will do well both to ask and answer this question. And right now, you will do well to listen to the answer that the bride gives here. You know, the, the one who wrote Song of Solomon. There's wonderful things here for us to learn about Christ. And this is the inspired word of God. We're given an account about him. Now, if you're not of the church, surely you must be curious to know why it is that believers all over the world have been willing to sacrifice and even die for this one Jesus Christ. What is it that makes him so special to to us for all of these centuries? Today, we'll take a beautiful poetic look, a beautiful poetic answer to that question. We could answer it in a more of a a mathematical kind of way about just exactly what he's done for us and so on. But this answers it in a beautiful poetic way. What does he mean to you? And let me encourage you, it may be that upon learning of him, you'll find that there's no better place for you than in his house. I'll have you know that that he will welcome anyone that will turn to him from their sins and come to him to be saved. That they might live in, in the father's house. In fact, he tells us as a church to go out and urge people to come. So let's go now to our scripture reading. I'll begin looking back a little bit with the bride's or the church's charge to the daughters of Jerusalem to pray to him for her, where she tells him, tell him I'm lovesick, she says. We'll begin with that. Then we'll see their response, the daughters of Jerusalem's response to what she says with their wonderful question. And then we will see her answer, which is what we'll be looking at today. So I'll begin in Song of Solomon 5, 8, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. And our text today will be particularly verse 10 to the end of the chapter. So here is the word of God. Give careful attention because it is the word of God. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 8. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved... That you tell him I am lovesick. What is your beloved more than another beloved, they say, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? So, so they want to know, like, what is, why, how is he different? And then she responds, what we're looking at today, verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And there we end the reading of God's holy word. It's easy to see from the bride's answer, from the church's answer, that she dearly loves this one about whom she speaks. She doesn't back paddle at all when they hit, this, hit her with this question. The way people do when you ask a question like that and, you know, you're a little bit taken aback, a little bit embarrassed because of your zeal. You know, maybe it was a little bit overmuch and they say, 
you know, well, how maybe a, a, a young woman, you know, interested in a guy and like, uh, you know, how is he any different than anybody else? And you're like, oh, we, you know, we're kind of making a big deal about it. You know, you'll be embarrassed a bit. You know, you're embarrassed a little bit by the question and you feel a little bit silly. And so you say something like, well, you know, I, I don't mean that he's perfect or anything, of course, but I, I mean that he's the best one for me. And you, you know, you qualified a little, and you probably you need to, right? When it's just a, another person like that, but she doesn't do that at all, not at all. She's not a bit ashamed. She does the very opposite. In fact, if anything, she seems to be disturbed that anyone should even deign to compare him <laughs> with with uh, anyone else. Like, how could you even ask that question? It would be like someone that was a master baker. And, you know, he, he bakes beautiful breads and everything. And, and some, some chap comes in and he says, uh, hey, what's the difference with this? And like, you know, Wonder Bread you get down at the supermarket. And the chef's like, I, I, don't, even, I don't even have an answer for that question. You, you'll just have to find out. You know, he doesn't even want to deal with it. Or, or, or somebody that has a, a wine taster guy that has a $10,000 bottle of wine. And some guy comes up with a $15 wine and says, What's the difference? And the, the guy's like, you, 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 don't, you don't understand here. So she's, how can you even ask that? Like, how can you even ask what makes him uh, greater than, than all the others? She presents him from the beginning to the end of this wasp about him. Remember that word wasp? It's a song of praise about someone of, of adoration. She presents him from beginning to end of her description as incomparable to any other beloved. She describes him from start to finish as desirable above all other persons or things. She opens her discourse. Let's look at that, how she begins and ends that way. She opens her discourse by saying that her beloved is both white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. Let's begin with the phrase chief among 10,000. The word chief means that he is outstanding. It is a word that is used of a banner, like a flag or something like that, that you'll have. Maybe an army has a flag that, that stands out. As George Burroughs says to the believer, Jesus is like the banner in an armed host, the center of attraction to which his eyes are always anxiously turned the rallying point of the soul, the full, high advanced above all others. We know him as the one who is beyond comparison. You look out in a mass of, of an army and out in a field, and you say, is that our army or is the one over? And then you see the flag, and it stands up above all the others. It's the standard the, uh, it, to, to trade him for another, this one who is excellent and stands out above them all would be unthinkable. It would be to give them the, the wonder bread for the, for the bakery bread. 10,000. What does it say? The chief, chiefest of 10,000 or outstanding among 10,000. 10,000 is the highest number used in Hebrew poetry for comparisons. It's not used as a definite number but it's used to refer to infinity. In other words, there's no one that compares. The bride is saying without any qualification whatsoever that he is superior to any other beloved 
that someone might desire. Now, as we look at this passage, it will help us in interpreting this passage to remember overall what she's doing here so that we can understand all the different things in this passage properly. We need to keep in mind this thing, that she is explaining how he is far better than any other, that he is the chief of of 10,000, superior to them all. What she says in this entire section is not how he is merely as good as any other, but how he is far superior to any other. So any of the things that she talks about, she's not saying, yeah, he's like these other ones, he has this and this and this. No, she's saying all of these things, he has way up, they have them down here, he has them way up here. Consider that then as we turn even to look at the first thing that she says about him in this introductory verse, in verse 10. What did she say before the part about saying that he's the chief of 10,000? She says that he's white and ruddy. What does she mean by that? Now, based on what we just saw, she's showing his superiority. Is she just saying that, oh, you know, he's got a really nice complexion. Like he's kind of, you know, he's got a mixture of the of color and stuff. And, you know, it's just it's a really nice blend and it's the right amount of color in his cheek and so on. No, she's looking at much more than a physical bodily appearance here when she says that. In fact, the words convey that the word white, the word translated white in the version I read actually means dazzling. Some of you may have a word like that in your translation dazzling it speaks of of things that shine maybe it says radiant in your bible that's one way it's translated sometimes while the word ruddy the second word that's used okay he's white and he's ruddy is from the word that is translated man or adam it's the word adam the first man which conveys man of clay and that word is translated ruddy because it also means red because, or brown, because Adam was made of the red or brown earth, that he was formed of the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So it carries that idea. So the first man was called Adam because he was made of the dust of the ground and was probably, therefore, a ruddy man as well. Many suggest that ruddy here may speak of his manliness as well. It's used that way a lot of times. And these these things I'm telling you, this is not just people who interpret the Song of Solomon the same way I am uh, with an allegory and all that. This is all the people that know the Hebrew language and stuff that would, would concur with these things I'm saying to you right now. So when we think of him, okay, let's go back to what we were talking about. When we think of him and the way that she's presenting him is way superior to everyone else. What do we do with these words that we're given here? Okay, it it would seem that this is a reference to something more, something greater that we know about him. His divinity. He's dazzling. He's radiant. He's white. And his humanity. He's man. He's of earth. He's ruddy. He's brown. That is the way that he is superior to all others, is that he is God and man. It is that he is both God and man that makes him unique to his church. No one else, the chief among 10,000, 
with whom there is absolutely no comparison whatsoever. He is unique because he is both God and man in one person and nobody else is. He is the only one who can reconcile us to God because he is the only one who is both God and man, a mediator between God and man. Even some of the most liberal commentators as well as conservative ones that that don't share the interpretation of this being an allegory say that this woman is speaking of her beloved in the likeness of a God. In other words, so these guys that think this is just poetry about a relationship with two people that are in love with each other, they say the lover is here presenting the other one like a God, using this term white or dazzling or radiant. It's giving them a God-like characteristics. They agree, in other words, that this term white refers to divinity. So allegorical interpretations or interpreters are not stretching things when they recognize divine language here. They're recognizing language that is, is, is here. So you see how the bride introduces her wasp, this song of praise about him, by showing that he is without a rival. Now let's jump to the end of her wasp and see what she says at the end. Okay, so we're looking at this first point. We're looking at the beginning and the end of her discourse. So at the end, verse 16, she says, we're only going to look at the one line in that. Yes, he is altogether lovely. It is the second line in verse 16. The word translated lovely conveys the idea of desirable. Something that's lovely, something that's covetable, like desirable, something that you greatly want. So it says he is altogether lovely or totally desirable, it could be translated. This is a very full phrase. This is a pregnant phrase. Think of it, altogether lovely. It includes so much. To be altogether lovely means that there is nothing about him that is not desirable. There are no spots or blemishes whatsoever. In every other beloved, you will find things that are disappointing, but never in him. I warned Manel and Holly about that in our uh, service today in the morning, that you know, at, when you guys are married and stuff, you're going to find flaws in each other. You know, it's not, that, that's going to be the way it is because that, that's how it is with us. But there's nothing like that in him. Altogether lovely. Every bit, every part, there's nothing that is not. If you think there is a defect in him, the problem is not with him, but it's with your judgment. You didn't see him right. The father has declared plainly that his son is without spot or blemish. He is altogether lovely. Isn't that a great phrase? Altogether lovely. Remember that about Jesus. Second, to be altogether lovely means that there is no part of him that is not also as desirable as it can be. Everything about him is totally desirable or lovely. Take all the beautiful and excellent things that he is compared to or that he could be compared to and he excels them all in whatever way they excel. A lily for its beauty. He has more beauty. A, um, a lamb for its gentleness. He has more gentleness. 
a lion for its strength and fierceness. He has more strength and fierceness. The sun for its shining. He shines brighter. A judge for his justice. He has more justice. A husband for his love. Take all that is excellent. And as the maker of all things that are, he has what they have to perfection and to the highest degree. Whatever is lovely in the created thing is altogether lovely in him. No matter what it may be, he is altogether lovely. So you see, in the first point, it was that that there's nothing that is unlovely about him. He's altogether lovely, all aspects. But then all those aspects that are lovely are all altogether lovely. And then a third way to look at that very pregnant phrase is that altogether lovely means that when you take all of the ways that he is excellent and you blend them all together, he is altogether lovely. All of him taken together is most lovely and most desirable. Sometimes when you mix things together, that doesn't come out so well. We know that with foods that you maybe are good by themselves, but you mix them together and they aren't very good. In him, all the best attributes of a lamb slain, for example, are joined with the lion that devours in one beautiful, perfect, whole person who is altogether lovely. You don't have to take away one thing to have the beauty. Even divinity and humanity, as we saw, are combined so that the creature at its perfection and the creator who is always perfect are as joined together only in Christ. He's the only one that's both God and man is altogether lovely. So you see that the bride will allow no rivals to her beloved. What is your beloved compared to any other beloved, you ask? She will tell you. It's not just perception, it's a fact. He is chief of 10,000. He excels them all. He is altogether lovely. But the bride does not answer this question only with generalities. She gets to specifics in this wasp as well. You know how sometimes when you're asked, you know, what's so special about this or that, and you can't really come up with the specifics. You say, oh, I just like it. Or, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, you know, oh, I'm such a sinner. And he'll say, uh, what, what, and how are you a sinner? In what way? Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, well, I, I can't really think of anything. You know, that, that kind of thing. She's not like that at all. The bride of Christ has an advantage here, though. She has been given prophets and apostles who are inspired by the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit has not left her with mere generalities in describing the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason that the bride does well, as I was telling you earlier, to listen to herself. We, the church, are to speak to one another about the excellence of Christ. We're to pray for each other that we would see and behold his excellence in glory. That's how we edify ourselves in love. So in verses 11 through 15, we have the particulars given in poetic form. When you look at a sculpture, you do well to look at it in a general way. You step back and you say, that's a beautiful, lovely sculpture. But then you also do well to look at the particular details. You go over if it's a sculpture that has a hand on it, and you look at the hand, and you look at how the artist did it. Is this a a hand of warfare, or is it a gentle hand, 
or is it a combination of those things? You look at the jaw. Do you see a a tightness like a, a nervous person or an angry person? Or do you see a softness? What sort of things has the artist done a good job in laying out in this sculpture? You look at the details as well as the whole. Now, I told you before how the Bible is full of artistic imagery to reveal Christ to us. We know Jesus better because we know him as a lamb. He's not really a lamb with, with fur and says, bah, bah, is he? He's, a, he's, he's the son of God. But we know what that means when it's used to describe Christ. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We know him as a husband. We know him as a door. He's not a, a piece of wood with hinges on it. We know him as a shepherd. He's not a guy out in the field with the shepherd's staff out looking after sheep that way. He looks after his people. Without poetic imagery and specific things like that, we would not know him nearly as well as we do. If we just said, oh, Jesus is altogether lovely. He's great. He's wonderful. And we left it there. No, we need these more details. So he is revealed to us in the Bible in various ways, and here in the Song of Solomon, in this poetical way. So we're meant to know him then in this way. This wouldn't be given to us by the Holy Spirit if it were not something that we are to benefit from that reveals him to us in a way that will be helpful. So the Holy Spirit has given us this, and we're meant to know him in this way. So let's look then, what are the particular qualities about our beloved that make him better than any other beloved? What does the church, his bride, herself, tell us? First, in verse 11, she says that he has a head of the finest gold. In the original language, there are actually two words that are translated here, finest gold. One word means shining gold, and the other word means something like pure gold. So it's gold gold in a way, so different words, but that, that's the idea. The way they're put together, it comes out something like gold of pure gold, if you're going to be really uh, literal with it. This shows how our beloved is different than any other beloved. No other beloved has a head of most pure gold. We learn in Daniel that the head of gold speaks of sovereignty and dominion. God gave King Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Remember that in Daniel? And in that dream, he showed him four kingdoms. Babylon, over which Nebuchadnezzar was king, followed by three other kingdoms, Persia, Greece, and Rome, which would replace the one that was before them. So when Babylon was brought down, it was brought down by Persia. And then when Persia was brought down, it was brought down by Greece. When Greece was brought down, it was brought down by Rome. In this dream, God, predict, God depicted King Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold on the image that he, he saw. And in Daniel 2, 37-38, Daniel explains to King Nebuchadnezzar what the head of gold represents. He says, Daniel 2, 37, You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them. You are this head of gold. So this head of gold speaks of universal dominion and power. But we know, even as Daniel goes on to show Nebuchadnezzar in this very vision, 
that a much greater kingdom than his and the three that followed was going to come and replace them all. And that kingdom is the kingdom of Christ, the little stone that's cut out of the mountain without hands that Daniel talks about. As we've already seen, he is the son of God. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, it says that the head of every woman is man and that the head of every man is Christ and that the head of Christ is God. He is the very son of God united in the blessed Trinity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is, Jesus the Son, is the brightness of his Father's glory, the express image of his person. God has said to him, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He has been given all authority in heaven and earth as the one who is God and man. He will reign forever and ever, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. There is, I tell you, nobody like our beloved with his head of finest gold. He is the only one who has supreme sovereignty and supreme dominion because he alone is the son of God who has made flesh. Okay, that's the first feature. The next feature that he alone possesses ties right in with this. We're told in the second part of verse 11 that his locks are wavy and black as a raven. Now, this is, is this a contradiction here? What did we read in Revelation? His hair was white. It was as white as snow. And here it's dark black. What's going on here? Well, you see, in Revelation, he was shown to be the Ancient of Days, the one who is wise and who is from everlasting. And so he was seen there. I'm telling you again, this is a vision showing us things about him. He was shown there with white hair because that was what was appropriate for that vision. The ancient of days who has wisdom and authority. But here, black as a raven. Why is that? It's to show that he never decays or grows old. What happens to people like me? My hair used to be brown. It's not so brown anymore. It turned color. Let a million years go by That happens because of age. Let a million years go by and he will still be the same. He never ages. He never wears out. In this way, our beloved is like no other beloved. Compare him to Nebuchadnezzar, whom we just saw was given a kind of a temporary head of gold thing in the vision, but nothing like the Lord Jesus is so superior to him being the true son of God. So take Nebuchadnezzar, Here's one of the great differences between him and Christ. Nebuchadnezzar grew old and died. His body rotted and it has rotted in the grave. His kingdom has already perished. Where is Babylon today? That Babylon, we could say the world in general. But our beloved will continue in full vigor and strength forever and ever. He will never faint or grow weary. Psalm 102, 25 through 28 compares our beloved even to the heavens and the earth. It says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, Jesus made all things, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow, all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue 
and their descendants will be established before you. What does this mean for us as the bride of Christ? It means that because we're united to him by faith, we will never perish. We will never die because he will keep us. He's our husband and our head. And we have, therefore, eternal life. What does the Bible say? John 3, 16, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Next, the bride speaks of the beloved's eyes. Verse 12 says, his eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. Now, we've seen doves' eyes before in the Song of Solomon. It was of the bride. Do you remember what they represented? I explained to you that when a woman is said to have dove's eyes, it means she's got eyes for nobody else but her husband. Nobody but her husband, just one man. Well, this tells us that the Lord, likewise, has eyes only for his bride. He doesn't look around with lustful, adulterous eyes. He is so devoted to us that he went to the cross to atone for our sins. And he will defend us and guard us jealously from all who would seek to take us away from him or harm us. Now, of course, remember, he has one bride. She's made up of many members, but she's just one bride. Yes, the dove's eyes are are beautifully committed to us. But in him, they speak of even more than that commitment, don't they? Because what do we think of with his eyes? This one who is excellent above all things. His eyes are omniscient. They are all-seeing, all-knowing eyes. Who, he doesn't miss anything about us. They're gentle, loving eyes that know everything about us and everything that concerns us. He looks after us. He looks out for us. He knows what our enemies are doing. He knows everything. A believer can never say, nobody understands what I am going through. He understands it more than you do. You need to remember that. You'll find comfort in that. It's supposed to bring you comfort. He understands even better than you. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says of his relationship to us, it speaks of it as that of an understanding priest who is ready to help us. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He totally understands. But was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Don't ever say that you've been tempted more severely than Jesus. Don't ever say that you've had, you have not, you have not even come close. You don't even know what real temptation is until like him, you don't sin. If you don't sin and don't sin and don't sin and the temptation, Satan turns up the volume. He makes it harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And Jesus never succumbed to to temptation. He is the one who knows how to fight temptation. Sometimes we think, oh, the person that's been tempted in the way that I have and has fallen, that's the person that can help me. No, the one that can help you is the one who resisted all of those things, being tempted in every way that we are. Brothers and sisters, you are never alone. He knows what you're going through. He knows all about it. He understands it. So he gazes on you with knowing eyes of the dove. Fourth thing the bride speaks about is his cheeks. She says, verse 13, his cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. This time the focus is not on what he looks like, but what he smells like, isn't it? The cheeks are often the place where men wear cologne and that sort of thing, where they did in these days. And we see that his cheeks are like a bed of spices and banks of scented herbs. We have seen in Song of Solomon the high place that is given to one's aroma. 
<laughs> we, don't, we don't focus on that so much in our society, but the Bible speaks of this frequently. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul says that we are an aroma of life unto life to those that believe and of death unto death to those that are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ. We who believe go around and there's a kind of a scent that goes off of us. I'm not talking about a literal smell, but I'm talking about an atmosphere that is like a smell. And again, these are pictures of things. So we've seen that, uh, we see that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were offered to God and they were seen to be, remember Noah, when he offered a sacrifice, burnt offering, it was a sweet aroma that went up to the Lord. And Christ himself is described in Ephesians 5, 2 like this, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. And our deeds, Paul refers to good deeds that God's people do, that are sacrificial deeds, as a sweet offering before the Lord. Our beloved is a sweet-smelling offering to the Father. He, by his sacrifice on the cross, atoned for our sin to make us his bride acceptable that we might live with him in his Father's house forever. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away our sin. The reason they were pleasing to the Father in the Old Testament is because they represented the Son who was to come. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that our sins are forgiven. And His sacrifice is to God a sweet-smelling aroma and to us. It is attractive to us who are God's people, a savor of life unto life, Christians who believe Christ and Christ Himself ultimately. A rotten smell makes you leave the room. A sweet smell draws you in. It attracts you. My grandfather ran a store in a small town up in the mountains, and uh, he had this, this little, little store, and whenever the people would come in on the bus, then uh, my mother worked for him, and she had to make uh, popcorn. And uh, he'd pop the popcorn, and the people would get off the bus, and he'd have the door open, and, and they'd smell it, and they'd all go in the store <laughs> because people love popcorn. And there's an attraction, there's a drawing. We should want our lives to be a sweet aroma to Christ, the way we live, that it is attractive for the glory of God, that we sacrifice for serving God and doing His will. We want to be like Christ. We want to make Him known. And He Himself is the sweet aroma that we hold up for all to see. Does our Lord have to you a sweet aroma that is refreshing to you? Next His lips are described. The bride of Christ says that he, Jesus, is better than all other beloveds because, still verse 13, his lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. That is not an ordinary lily. An ordinary lily does not drip with liquid myrrh. It's deliberately not ordinary. It's showing something that is beyond nature here, The words of his lips, the words that he speaks are something that is extraordinary. No man ever spoke like this man spoke. Truly, as we sing in Psalm 45, grace is upon his lips. He speaks words of peace, words of comfort, words of assurance, and of the promise of salvation to his beloved. 
Remember how He spoke to His bride when she was languishing, when she was sluggish and sleepy, so gently, so sweetly. 5-2, our very chapter that we're in. Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. He speaks words, you see, that bring healing, comfort, encouragement, correction, instruction, guidance, wisdom, peace, strength, healing, conviction. His words are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, and we find them in the Holy Scriptures. He tells us of the future that He has for us. He tells us of plans that He has for us. He tells us of what He has done for us and what it means for us, what it means for the future. He tells us that He will be with us forever, that He will never leave us or forsake us. By His excellent words, we have believed. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Where is it found? Not from a mystical connection with Him, but from the Word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your truth, your word is truth. Okay, that's where we find the truth. It's the mystical and the scriptures together. The mystical being that God's spirit works in us as we come to the scripture and we learn of Christ. Six, we're told, verse 14, that his hands are like rods of gold set with beryl. Now, perhaps the rods are of gold are his fingers and the fingernails or the burl that's set on the rods. Uh, not, really, not really sure. It doesn't really matter. It could be referring, the rods could be his whole arm. The, the word hand and arm is a little bit blurred in the, in the Hebrew language. I mean, it's sort of the same thing. And uh, it could be referring to his whole arm, maybe with, with bracelets on the arm or something like that. It really doesn't matter, does it? Because what this is saying, it's just telling us that his arms and his hands are extraordinary. And they are. And that's what we need to focus on. What do arms and hands do? Arms are powerful. Arms reach out and rescue. Arms do things. They accomplish things. What do hands do? They, they make things. They, they heal things. He touches the leper and the leper is cleansed. Think about all the things of, uh, of the hands. Think of our beloved's arms and hands, mighty army and skillful hands that make things. It's both of that, both of these. He formed the mountains and the valleys. He formed us from the dust of the ground and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. He made us male and female. He made the stars. He made every molecule, the grand things, the little things. His mighty arm reaches forth to save us from our sin. His mighty arm accomplished our redemption, rescued his people from Egypt. It is his arm, by his arm, that he gathers the nations to himself for salvation. Revelation 15.3 tells us that his works are great and marvelous. Psalm 111.3 says that his works are honorable and glorious. And consider the nature of those precious hands. They're the strongest hands, but they're able to do the most delicate, delicate, careful work at the same time. Remember what I said before, he's a combination of all things excellent. They are strong enough to move galaxies. They are intricate enough to form the parts of a cell. They cannot be injured, and yet they have nail prints. They are hands that destroy nations, and they are hands that heal the sick. They are beautiful hands, like gold decorated with burl. 
No other beloved has hands like our beloved. None even come close. Seventh, his body is described as carved or polished ivory, inlaid with sapphires. This is also in verse 14. Most understand this to refer to the trunk of his body. The word that's used here speaks of the the gut or the bowels, the inner organs where the Hebrews saw as the seed of affections. It was in in here, the heart, the the stomach, the intestines, all, all around here. That's where the affections are. So if you're looking at a sculpture and how it is beautiful and decorated with, with the ivory and the sapphires on it, what is being depicted here is beautiful. The, 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 the affections, the, the compassion, that, that sort of thing. Okay, we know that he is divine, of course. So uh, commentators of all sorts note that the bride here also seems to be speaking of divinity with this picture that's given here of the ivory and so on. And uh, we agree with that. Speaking of divinity, we know who the one that is truly divine is. It is the Son of God. His belly, the place of his affections, is like no other. And what is so excellent about his seat of affections? Well, his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Nothing is sweeter to us as a bride than his tender mercy and compassion, that he is one who forgives and who who restores. His deep affliction for us when we are afflicted. In all of our affliction, he is afflicted. He doesn't afflict us willingly. We spoke of his dove's eyes that see and understand. Now we see his bowels that are full of affection and tender care for us. The idols of the nations are harsh. They don't care about anyone. Our Lord Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. How often would have I gathered you under my wings? He is full of tender compassion for his bride. His body is beautiful ivory carved with sapphires. I mean, laid with sapphires. A thing of beauty beyond compare. Eighthly, we're told of his legs. Firm, strong, beautiful, precious, valuable, pillars of marble set on bases of gold. We read in the scriptures, we, we read in the scriptures of Dagon, the idol god of the, the Philistines who toppled over. You remember when the Ark of the Lord was brought in and Dagon fell over and, 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 and broke apart on the threshold? He had legs. Dagon had legs, but he couldn't walk. He had legs, but he couldn't stand. He couldn't stand on his own. He had to be propped up again. Not so our beloved. He has legs that are here in the vision seen as on bases of gold, legs of marble, stable, solid. Nobody can topple him for his throne is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. Now I want you to think about his legs. They are so superior to any other legs. They're not like other legs. Other, others have real legs. This is a vision of legs that are not really legs. Because he transcends legs. He goes wherever he wants. His legs are legs that he can be everywhere and is everywhere at the same time. He can act in five places or a thousand places and does so that that he chooses to act. God is not limited. He has legs that are so stable and no one can can unsettle him or no one can reach up to heaven and pull God down or or attack him or, or do anything to unsettle him. Like all these things, you see, is with the other things that we've seen, 
He doesn't actually have eyes. We talked about eyes. But he has something greater than eyes. He has eyes that see everywhere all at once. The omniscient eyes that understand everything. Same thing with his legs. He can go anywhere. That's why the legs on the vision are decorated as they are with these, this, this imagery. They're superior to all other legs. Always, he is with us to defend us and to help us. He is with us to commune with us as we go forth in, by faith in his name. He's there to guard and protect us, behind us, ahead of us, even when we do not sense it. Okay, the bride didn't have a sense of his presence with her now because he had indeed withdrawn the manifestation of his presence, but he was still with her. That's the reason that she's seeking him so earnestly because he's there working in her even now. Ninthly, we're told of his countenance. His countenance is like Lebanon. This is verse 15. Excellent as cedars. Lebanon, known for its beautiful, majestic scapes, you know, that you could look out and see the these wonderful, huge cedar trees that grow there, stately trees. It's often used to denote beauty and grandeur and majesty. The countenance of our beloved speaks of his whole appearance. Think about the bride that I mentioned before. You know, she's, she comes at the, the, the back of the church. It's called the pre- presentation of the bride. And everybody turns around and you look at all of her. She's there with her adorned for her husband, a bride adorned for her husband, like it talks about in Revelation 21. And you see the countenance, the the whole person is there to look upon. And this is saying that, that it speaks of the overall impression that we have of him that is seen. The, the, the word countenance has is it, associated with the verb to see. And so the bearing, the aspect, the form, and the image chosen. What is it again? Lebanon. Okay, beauty, majesty, dignity, excellence. It's actually, when it says excellence, the word is choice. Something that's chosen. I tell you what a glorious day it will be when our Lord Jesus returns at the end of the age. He's going to come in all the fullness and brightness of his glory and we will behold his countenance. We will see him in the clouds in all of his glory and it will be a marvelous thing. We will have the capacity to not fly apart at the seams when we see his glory. If we saw him now, we would be undone. Like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. It was just a vision of him. When we see his glory, it will be a grand and marvelous day. It will be a day that we will never forget. What a wonderful day of rejoicing that will be. So now the bride has praised him from head to foot, hasn't she? So now, how, now I want you to see how the bride sums up all that he is to her in the last verse, verse 16. First, we see something that might seem out of place. I love it. Because in a way, it is out of place. And it's wonderfully out of place. Because it's meaningfully out of place. It's not really out of place. We see something, though, that might seem that way. She says, his mouth is most sweet. Now, think with me. Why would that seem out of place? Well, she's already gone from head down to uh, his face, down to, you know, she went to his eyes and then his cheeks and then his lips and then his arms and then his trunk and then his legs and feet. she's gone all the way from head to foot. Why does she now go back to his mouth again? What is that about? She's already done, talked about the lilies dripping with liquid myrrh, the 
the, the, the words that were so sweet and so on. But now she uses the word mouth instead of the word lips. The word mouth is a word that speaks of the palate, which she describes here as most sweet. James Durham, the commentator, says that in the song, the mouth is not used to refer to words. When the song refers to someone's wonderful words, it uses the word lips, which is what we saw earlier. Now it's mouth, the palate. So what does it refer to then here? She is referring, I believe, and many others, to his kisses. The very thing that she praised at the opening of the Song of Solomon... Do you remember when she did that? Look all the way back at verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. She began by saying, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And she says to him, For your love is better than wine. Remember what that refers to? The kisses? Kisses. It's, it's the manifestation of Christ's love to us. That's what a kiss is. It's an expression of love. That I love you and I care for you. It is, make, it is his making his love known to us. No wonder, she says, that his mouth is very sweet. Think about this. This is the thing that she has been desiring. As Matthew Henry says, the kisses of his mouth, all the tokens of his love, have a transcendent sweetness in them and are most delightful to those who have their spiritual senses exercised. To you that believe, he is precious. So no doubt she speaks of his kisses because this is what she wants right now. He came to kiss her earlier and she was too tired to get up and let him in. He went away and now she is yearning for him because of his touch. She wants this excellent one whom she has just been describing even more now. The one that she's been describing to her friends. She wants him to come and kiss her with the kisses of his mouth, which are most sweet. That's the reason she adds this talk about his mouth after praising him from head to foot. She wants him to come. And remember what we saw? There was a word that we use from the New Testament, John 14. He comes, he and the Father come to manifest his love to us. That's what we're talking about. Kisses. He, he makes known, I love you. He shows us, brings assurance to us, brings, uh, brings evidences to us of his love. Now, she continues her conclusion in verse 16 with the words that we already looked at, that he is altogether lovely or desirable. Just remind you, we saw then this means that there is nothing undesirable about him that everything about him is as lovely as it can be, and that all of him is lovely together. We will make fresh discoveries of his beauty and continue to search out his perfections for all eternity because he is altogether lovely. I needn't say more about that. We've already covered that. But finally, she adds, this is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Notice the word this. This is my beloved. The one that she's just been talking about and praising, this is the one. This is the reason that I'm out here in the night looking for him. This is the reason that I ask you to pray for me. This is the reason that when I got beaten up by the watchman, I didn't even care because all I thought about was finding him. This excellent one I've just described, this is he. 
It is as if she's saying them, you asked me about him and now I've told you. This one I have just described. This one who is altogether lovely. This one who, this is the only one like that. There is no other like him. Surely you can see, she says, why I am uh, pursuing him earnestly. Notice also the word my. It's used twice. My beloved and my friend. What a comfort when we can say of this excellent one, my beloved and my friend. She possesses him as her own because he has given himself to her. He's not some ordinary one that she possesses, not any old one, but this one, the chief among 10,000 who is altogether lovely. He is my beloved and he is my friend. Matthew Henry again, he says, let others be governed by the love of the world and seek their happiness and its friendship and favors. This is my beloved and this is my friend. Others may do as they please, but this is my soul's choice, my soul's rest, my life, my joy, my all. This is he whom I desire to live and die with. And notice the relation to her that he is my beloved and that he is my friend. Not only is he her husband, but also her friend. He cares for her. He shares with her. He looks after her. He provides for her. Does all things that an excellent husband does and all things that a dear friend does. And now, what about you? Is he your friend? Is he your beloved? And if not, why not? Is he not the chief among 10,000? Would you not agree? Is he not altogether lovely? Yes, I know that he is high above you. He seems maybe out of reach. I know that I know that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner too. How could it be that he would show any interest in you? This great one, this one who's the chief among 10,000. I'm here to tell you that the glorious task that he was given that he has taken on is the salvation of sinners. He came that sinners might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. You know, that we might have life and and most certainly we do have abundant life when we have him as our husband and as our friend. He, you see, finds glory in taking what was lost and ruined and hopeless and totally defiled in making it lovely, in restoring it, in bringing it back to God. He shed his blood to pay the debt of our sin. Justice had to be satisfied. He and his father had to be satisfied that their honor was upheld in the way that he secured our pardon. That meant that the penalty for our sin had to be fully covered and that he has done that by his death on the cross. Christ has accomplished it. The breach of justice had to be closed so that the lie that we believe that sin is only a trifle, sin against God is only a trifle, would not be allowed to stand. We have to see that sin is a huge deal because God is a holy God and it required nothing less than the blood of Jesus to atone for it. That's what everybody denies. That's what nobody wants to acknowledge. And if you don't acknowledge that, you don't have a great one to worship anymore. If he's not so holy that he can have nothing to do with sinners like us unless he comes by his own blood, reconciles us, 
then you don't have much of a God to worship at all. But we do have this one to worship who is holy and who is without compare. And I'm here to tell you today as one who is officially sent by him to proclaim his word, that he commands you to turn from your own way and to be restored to him. If you reject his call, you do so to your own peril and sorrow and eternal ruin. Here is an opportunity to have this excellent one that we have seen revealed in this passage, to have him not just as someone who's kind of partly involved with you, but as your own husband and your own friend that you can say, my husband and my friend. Simply call out to him to have mercy on your soul, to save you from your sin by his cross, and to give you new life in him as his own. And he will do it. You don't have to do it. You can't save yourself. He is the mighty one, and he gets glory by saving that which is lost. The more lost it is, the more glory he gets in saving it. And then you can say with the bride, he is altogether lovely. He is my beloved, and he is my friend. Please stand, and let's indeed give thanks to him. O oh, gracious Father in heaven, Truly, you have revealed in your word wonderful things to us about your son. We thank you for this pregnant statement that this bride has made right from that very phrase that she had that, that he is the uh, altogether lovely to the, the, the statement that he is the, the chief among 10,000 and then all of the particulars that she gave of his glory and his his beauty and his, his preciousness to us is his bride. Truly, there is no other beloved like this beloved. And I pray, Lord, that we would realize that, that we would see his glory more and more, that we would delight in him, that we would give thanks to him, that we would cherish him, that we would seek him, and that we would not be content apart from the kisses of his mouth, the manifestation of his love to us, the assurance that we belong to him and that he belongs to us. Father, we thank you for all of the things that, that you have shown us about him and we pray that we would cherish these and prize them the way we should, that we would know what it is to have this abundant life that he gives to his own. Oh, Father, help us to declare the news to the people that are outside that they may come to know our Lord Jesus Christ and love him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's get ready of the Lord our God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.